Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. Now, on this episode, we are actually going to focus on something that is usually neglected. I know I've been guilty of it. You know, we focused a lot on modern jazz and classic jazz and New Orleans jazz and things like that, you know what I mean? But this episode is going to focus on Chicago-style jazz. Now, I personally don't agree with a lot of the labels, you know what I mean? Great music is great music. Um, I actually happen to agree (laughs) with the great Pee Wee Russell. Um... In which, as only Pee Wee Russell can say, people who use terms like the Chicagoans or New Orleans style, I despise that stuff. Listen, write out a list of guys who are supposed to play Chicago style jazz, and I'd like to know when they did so and so and so leave Chicago. When was he ever there? Where was he born? Or when did he ever go into New Orleans and if, they, if he plays New Orleans style? Go down the whole list. I'll grant you a few exceptions as to people who left and played in those cities, but the whole idea of labels is insipid. Most of the so-called Chicagoans did not get their music education there, and many didn't even get to Chicago during the period when there was something to hear. Bix was from Davenport, I was from Oklahoma and St. Louis. A few of us were fortunate to hear Louis, but not necessarily in Chicago. The music that was played in Chicago surely had an influence on the kids around Chicago, like Freeman and McPartland. They could hear people like Jimmy Noon. They were fortunate to be there, but Bix, for one, had heard Louie even before that time. So, I don't. I agree with. I, I do agree with what Pee Wee Russell said there. I, I don't like labels either. But for history books and for people who were. Fans of categorizing things. That is what we are, for the purpose of this episode, going to call it. Is a focus on Chicago-style jazz. But it came from New Orleans. And that's what we're going to start out with. We're going to go through this with 21 glorious tracks in chronological order. So... Let's get to some music. The very first track is by the great Freddie Keppard. And here is Salty Dog. Thank you. 
All right, that was a great Freddie Keppard trumpet extraordinaire from New Orleans, Louisiana. And that was Salty Dog. Uh, that comes from his album. Let me take a look at the pick here. That comes from his album, The Complete Set on Retrieval Records. The Complete Set of Freddie Keppard, 1923 to 1926. And um, if you want to check that album art out and uh, you like the sound of that track and you want to buy it and support, you know, the Keppard estate, um, just go to the website. That's Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast dot WordPress dot com. Um, okay, a little bit about Freddie Keppard. He's kind of the one who started the whole thing. And about 1917, he settled into Chicago from New Orleans. Now, why would he move to Chicago from New Orleans? I mean, New Orleans is quite tropical in climate. You had a lot of exciting things going on in the city. It's the birthplace of jazz. Well, he made Chicago his home in 1917 because uh, basically they had closed down Storyville. That was the uh, red light district or just known as the district because trust me, you know, nobody who was a musician at the time really called it Storyville. They just called it the district, you know. which I might add, you know, a lot of these things that I'm going to tell you in this podcast, I found out through a book that I'm currently reading and loving, by the way. It's called Hear Me Talking to You. And uh, it's by Nat Shapiro and Nat Hentoff. Uh, it's called Hear Me Talking to You. It's the story of jazz as told by the men who made it. And it's basically like various little... Um, Interviews with Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, William Manone, Kid Ory, Danny Barker, Mutt Carey, Zooty Singleton, Jack Weber, um, all these dudes. And they talk about Storyville and they talk about um, how it wasn't called Storyville. And they talk about Chicago jazz. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so on fire about this right now is like, ah, yeah, okay, I see how these, these, these strings connect and stuff. So, um, so basically when the district closed down due to the government, thank you, U.S. government, um, it, it forced a lot of the men, you know, to find work elsewhere. So Chicago was begging for that kind of style of jazz. So Freddie Keppard moved up there and, um, Soon after he'd settled into the Chicago jazz scene, King Oliver eventually came up there and became the cornet king and uh, was have said to have attracted crowds by thrusting his horn out of a window and blowing Keppard down. Nevertheless, Keppard did well in finding continuous employment with different bands, etc., and... Then he started leading his own group. And when he started leading his own group, he got uh, a clarinetist by the name of Jimmy Noon, who we're going to talk about in a little bit, and the great Paul Barbran 
on drums. These are New Orleans legends. Um, so yeah, and they would work for each other's bands as well. And Keppard would work in Chicago with Jimmy Noon, Johnny Dodds, Erskine Tate, Doc Cook, Don Pasquale, uh, Lil Harden, otherwise known as Lil Harden Armstrong. Uh, all these bands... And he eventually was also the first to kind of go out west and bring jazz over to the West Coast. Now, here's the interesting thing about Freddie Keppard is he actually had the chance to become the very first recorded jazz artist on record. And different reasons by different folks say that he said no. Uh, for instance, there is... The story that Sidney Bechet, who knew Freddie Keppard very well, said that he was a quote-unquote good-time guy and that he thought that music was for fun, it's not meant to be turned into a business, and he didn't want to, you know, sell out to the, the big companies, you know. And if he did and he started making records, then it would have been all about money and profits and how many records he sold, and it wouldn't have been about enjoyment. There's also the rumor that Freddie Keppard sat there and he said, no, 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 no. I don't want people, I don't want people stealing my style, man. Because see, here's the thing. If I record on them records and all of them trumpet players can play that record over and over again, they could steal all my licks. To an extent, he was right, but he could not stop the momentum. So he said no, and instead, the original Dixieland Jazz Band became the very first recorded jazz group on record. So there you have it. But it could have been Freddie Keppard if he would have just said yes. And eventually he did say yes because he saw the writing on the wall. And yes, he was right. Jazz musicians do copy licks. That's how we learn. And we're going to get into a little bit of that later too. But on to the next track. I mentioned somebody that he worked with, the great Jimmy Noon. And here is Jimmy Noon with his fantastic clarinet with My Daddy Rocks Me. Thank you. 
ride. That was the great clarinet of Jimmy Noon. That's J-I-M-M-I-E, Jimmy Noon, N-O-O-N-E. And in a very similar story to Freddie Capard, uh, I'm going to set the scene for you. In 1917, Noon was playing with Kid Ori and Papa Celestan in the Red Light District until the Red Light District closed. Then he rejoined up with Keppard in Chicago. Uh, and um, basically, he moved in 1918, he moved to Chicago where he was studying sim- uh, clarinet lessons with the Chicago Symphony clarinetist, Franz Schipp. Now, that name will be important as we get to the end of the podcast. Remember that name. Jimmy Noon taking lessons with Franz Schipp. So, um, he played at Chicago's Royal Garden Cafe with Paul Barberin and Freddie Keppard. He also played along with King Oliver and Bill Johnson and... um, all these, you know, musicians. In 1920, he joined Doc Cook's dance orchestra in which he played saxophone and clarinet. Uh, and he did that for like six years. Uh, but as it turns out, it was a family affair. Did you know this? Jimmy Noon was a brother-in-law of both Freddie Keppard and he was a brother-in-law to Paul Barberin. So it's no wonder that the three of them looked out for each other all in Chicago. It was a family affair. Um, in 1926, he started leading a band at the Apex Club, which is at 330 East 35th Street. Um, this is one of those jazz age clubs in Chicago's South Side. And the Apex Club Orchestra, under Jimmy Noon's direction, um, eventually led to his composition Apex Blues. He recorded a bunch of great tracks and actually the classical composer Maurice Ravel actually had said um, that in 1928 when he wrote Bolero, it was actually credited from hearing an improvisation by Jimmy Noon. So for all you Ravel fans, you're welcome, says Jimmy Noon. Uh, so there you go. Uh, he actually would turn out to be a huge influence on many young kids starting to play the clarinet. And we'll get into that in a little bit as well, at near uh, closer to the end of the podcast. But uh, we're going to move on. So that's two guys from New Orleans who's moved up to Chicago. Let's take a look at a third who is really important. Talking about Joe Oliver, better known as King Oliver. Thank you. 
That was Weather Bird Rag by King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band, 1923. Mm. Okay, a little bit about King Oliver here. So he was in New Orleans, of course, because he's from New Orleans. And he was playing a dance, and a fight broke out. And this is according to his widow, Estella, from the Tulane University Hogan Jazz Archive. Okay, So he was playing at a dance in the district in New Orleans, and uh, a fight broke out, a big fight. And the police arrested him and his band and all the fighters. And then not long after that, the district closed. Same story, you see. And he moved to Chicago around 1918 with his wife and his stepdaughter. Now, in Chicago, he found work with all these New Orleans colleagues. You know what I mean? Uh, Guys like clarinetist Lawrence Duhay. Bill Johnson, who is the bass player in the classic photo of King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band. Uh, Roy Palmer was the trombonist. If you're not sure about Roy Palmer, State Street Ramblers. Hell of a tone on the trombone. And, of course, he would work with the drummer from New Orleans, who was up in Chicago, Paul Barberin. So eventually, Oliver became the leader of Lawrence Duhay's band, and he would play at a number of these Chicago clubs. Then by the summer of 1921, he took one of those bands all the way out to the West Coast, San Francisco, and he returned back to Chicago in 1922, and he began uh, with his new band name, King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band. And he would play with that band at the Royal Gardens Cabaret, uh, which was later named the Lincoln Gardens. But the Royal Gardens, hence the Royal Garden Blues. And he that's where he sent for this young little kid back home in New Orleans. He said, man, we're doing so well up here. There's money to be made. I know you would be a hit up here. I'm sending for you, son. And that young kid was the young Louis Armstrong. And that made it. Because the Creole jazz band was King Oliver on cornet. Louis Armstrong on second cornet. Baby Dodds on drums. And his brother, Johnny Dodds, the great Johnny Dodds on clarinet. Lil Hardin on piano. Honoré Dutre. On the trombones, Bill Johnson on bass. And that is the exact band from that classic picture of King Oliver and his Creole Jazz Band, 1923. And that same group recorded for Jeanette Records, OK Records, Paramount Records, Columbia Records. Everybody wanted to record this new brand of New Orleans-style jazz that was being featured in such a, a stellar like firework of a hit in Chicago. And that's what we heard was one of those tracks. One of the best tracks, in my opinion. Weather Bird Rag. And it's just mm, good, 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 good stuff. So King Oliver, he's got that great, 
great trumpet tone, but he was known as a freak player. Now, what is a freak player? Does that mean he's got this X-Men-like ability on the trumpet? No, 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 no. It means that they would use like little things to disguise their sound, right? It's not a pure thing, you know? So he was the first to use like mutes and mutes in combination with plungers and just plungers and, you know, gl uh, glasses at the end of the trumpet bell to get these strange sounds, you know what I mean? And the idea was that these instrumentalists were trying to sound like the vocalists of the day. So it was the instrumentalists imitating the vocalists. And later on, it would be the vocalists imitating the instrumentalists, but just sitting there saying so this is what made it such a hit and whether he realized it or not king oliver and the creole jazz band playing in chicago with louis and lil and the dodds brothers etc made such an impact on so many young kids who weren't even allowed in the clubs they were just sitting outside on the curb just listening and we're going to get into that but it cannot go without mentioning that King Oliver and that Creole jazz band had a huge, huge impact on what would be called Chicago jazz, Chicago-style jazz. Okay. Up next, another New Orleans native who comes up to Chicago, talking about Ferdinand Lamoth. Who? Jelly Roll Morton. Here's Wolverine Blues. Thank you. 
That was the great Jelly Roll Morton with Wolverine Blues. You know, Jelly Roll is one of those hard people you depend down in one area or another. But he would be from New Orleans. He would go and travel from New Orleans and he'd be on some kind of traveling circuit, whether it was a, a tour with his band or a tour with another group or just by himself on piano or he was a traveling salesman who tried to sell this like bootleg cure-all that was really just like coca-cola and salt you know and a put in a bottle um or you know he traveled down to mississippi to alabama to chicago to new york to california you name it but in 1923, because that seemed like that was the magic year for jazz in Chicago, Jelly Roll Morton returned to Chicago. And the reason for that was he was trying to claim the authorship for a piece of music that was recently published. And that was what we just heard, the Wolverine Blues. Um, what it was is he released the first of his real commercial recordings first is uh, piano rolls and where he would record um, the songs on solo piano and then he would also record those same songs with different bands so we heard the band version of the Wolverine Blues um, in 1926 though he got a record contract for one of the largest and most prestigious record companies in the U.S. That was Victor Records. Now, this gave him a chance to bring a well-rehearsed band, not just throw-together group, but a well-rehearsed band to play his exact arrangements in the Victor Recording Studios in Chicago. Now, this became the Jelly Roll Morton and the Red Hot Peppers recordings. Those famous jazz recordings. And these are all regarded as classics. And just like what Freddie Capper was doing, just like what King Oliver was doing, Jelly Roll settled in and did the exact same thing. But of course, in typical Jelly Roll flair. The Red Hot Peppers featured none other than New Orleans jazz musicians. Kid Ory. Omer Simeon. George Mitchell. Johnny St. Cyr. Barney Begard. Johnny Dodds. Baby Dodds. And Andrew Hilaire. Now, all, th all those names are well-established New Orleans jazz musicians. Some of them are legendary names, like the Dodds Brothers, Barney Picard, Omer Simeon, Kid Ory, Johnny St. Cyr. But this was one of the first groups, General Morton and his Red Hot Peppers, that were booked for tours by the MCA. And it's just, it was phenomenal phenomenal music and that kind of those kind of recordings reached out to the kids in Chicago who would later be associated with Chicago jazz as well so it's truly like picking up it's like copy paste you know what I mean you copy that New Orleans vibe 
and then the U.S. government closes the district down, and then paste it into New or- in, from New Orleans into Chicago, and that's where King Oliver was. It became New Orleans 2.0. Put it that way. King Oliver, Freddie Kepper, Jimmy Noon, the, the Dodds brothers, Jelly Roll Morton. It became, I mean, Louis Armstrong, for God's sakes. It became New Orleans 2.0. And unfortunately, it just kind of gets overlooked. Like, yeah, it was New Orleans, New Orleans, New Orleans, and then they moved to Chicago, and then New York. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, it's not like that, you know. So... Uh, Jelly Roll was a huge part, and um, yeah, and now we're going to take a, a closer look at one of those names that I just mentioned, uh, one of the clarinet gods from New Orleans who moved up to Chicago. Talking about Johnny Dodds. Here's Johnny Dodds with Lady Love. the great Johnny Dodds with Lady Love and that is not your typical blues kind of song or whatever you know but just got some very cool hip chord changes and a great melody to go along with it you know 
Listen, I don't know if if any of you listeners to the podcast listen to a lot of early jazz, but I do. And there are some really raunchy clarinet tones out there in early jazz. I mean, they're feeling the feeling is there. You can't neglect the feeling, you know what I mean? But there are some really raunchy tones out there. But never never do you get a raunchy tone with Johnny Dodds. He had uh, an immaculate tone for the time, you know, and that's one of the reasons that he's regarded so highly in jazz history, especially from interviewing people who were influenced by him and things like that. You know what I mean? His tone was spot on. It really was. Now, Johnny Dodds was from New Orleans. He was already playing with groups like Frankie Dusen, Kid Ory, King, excuse me, King Oliver. But he went to Chicago, and uh, he played again with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, which we mentioned earlier, uh, which he recorded with that 1923 group, Louis Armstrong and his brother Baby Dodds and, you know, King Oliver and all that. Um, and Lil, Lil Harden. But um, after the, the Oliver Band broke up in 1924, uh, Johnny Dodds reported Placed Alcide Nunez as the house clarinetist and bandleader of Kelly's Stables in Chicago. Now, from 1924 to 1930, that six-year span, he worked regularly at Kelly's Stables. Like, that's that was his house gig. And he recorded with bunches and bunches of small groups, um, most notably the Hot Five and Hot Seven of Louis Armstrong, which we'll talk about later. But he also recorded with the other stellar small group in Chicago, Jelly Roll Morton's Red Hot Peppers. That's right. Johnny Dodds was a piece of each one of those pies. So for those of you who's like, Johnny Dodds, who's that big deal? No, he really is. He really is, because he is part of the Louis Armstrong legacy, he's part of the King Oliver legacy, and he's part of the Jelly Roll Morton legacy. This guy's it, man. This guy is the glue that keeps it all connected, I'm telling you. He recorded prolifically under his own name uh, between 27 and 29, 1927-1929. And he recorded for Paramount, Brunswick Vocalion, and Victor. Um, he kind of became a big deal on the Chicago jazz scene of the 1920s. I don't know if you know this, but people know me. I'm kind of a big deal. I'm Johnny Dodds. Um, but with the Great Depression... Um, his stardom kind of declined, you know, because 1929 was a Great Depression. Uh, his career gradually recovered, uh, but he did not record for most of the 1930s due to the Depression and for some ill health reasons. Uh, he only recorded two sessions, and they were both for Decca. It was January of 1938 and June of 1940, but by August of 1940... He had a heart attack and died in Chicago. But his style and his tone and all the recordings that he helped make in his short time here on Earth influenced hundreds, I mean hundreds, of clarinet players. Probably thousands. 
So, yeah, am I taking a little bit of time for Johnny Dodds? Absolutely, because I don't feel like he definitely gets enough credit. So, here's to Johnny Dodds. Up next, we're going to talk about one of those other pieces that were so important that Johnny Dodds made a mark with. We're going to talk about the Louis Armstrong Hot Fives and Hot Seven groups. Here is Potato Head Blues. Potato Head Blues by the great Louis Armstrong. And that comes from one of his Hot Fives, Hot Sevens recordings. That was actually the Hot Seven. And it's important to know a couple of things. Um, first of all, little factoid, uh, or as Ted Mosey would say, fun fact. Potato Head Blues is one of Woody Allen's favorite solos. He said that one of it, what was it? He said that... Um, in my best Woody Allen voice. 
One of the whole reasons I'm glad to be on this earth is simply just to listen to Louis Armstrong's Potato Head Blues solo. It's just, it's, 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 I, 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 it's just fantastic. So, uh, <laughs> which I agree, it actually is. And Woody is the early jazz. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to early jazz. Um, yeah. But that is a fantastic classic solo. Uh, but all of the Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings by Louis Armstrong were actually recorded between 1925 and 1928. Um, of course, what makes Louis Armstrong so indelible, indelibly important to jazz is that, and it's been, you know, documented hundreds of times but i'll just reinforce it here it's not that he's the first soloist there's there's plenty before him buddy bolden king oliver freddie kephart etc 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 it's that he has something artistic to say in his solos not saying that king oliver and freddie kephart and buddy bolden and all that didn't whenever they played but there was something that was you knew it was high art when you heard Louis Armstrong solo it was something extraordinary now let's break down that word not ordinary but extra ordinary that was Louis Armstrong he was above and beyond every solo and this was truly some of his peak recordings for the hot fives and the hot sevens now the crazy part about it is that this is the group where he had some of his most famous solos. We're talking hotter than that. We're talking Stromus and Barbecue. And, of course, Potato Head Blues. In which he had that whole stop time technique. You know, we're talking about playing in the breaks, right? And the crazy part about it is that's the same group that he actually came up with what is now known as scat singing. When he forgot the words or he dropped the music, whichever rumor you want to call it, to heebie-jeebies. Heebie-jeebies is another big recording by the Hot 5, Hot 7 group. Um, so let's break this down because this is a m integral part of jazz history. So the Hot 5 at this time were actually Louis Armstrong on trumpet. Kid Ori on the trombone, Johnny Dodds on the clarinet, Johnny St. Cyr, who we heard that name before from uh, Jelly Roll Morton's groups, on guitar and banjo, and then Lil Hardin Armstrong on the piano. That's right. He married Lil Hardin from the King Oliver group. And she became Miss Lil Hardin Armstrong. So, there you go. <laughs> but there's a whole host of great, great, great songs uh, with a hot five. Cornet Chop Suey, Muskrat Ramble, you know, Strut Muslim Barbecue, just killer groups, you know what I mean? Um, so he basically took No Wonder, right? Um no wonder the, the King Oliver Creole Jazz Band broke up because he took Lil and himself and Johnny Dodds. Now, here's the other thing, right? So if you go back and you think about uh, the Hot Fives, they added two members for the Hot Seven group, right? So it was basically the members of the Hot Five 
which was Louis Armstrong on a, on the trumpet, Johnny Dodds on the clarinet, Lil Harden Armstrong on the piano, Johnny St. Cyr on the banjo, um, and then Kid Ory was actually re- replaced by John Thomas on trombone because Kid Ory took a gig touring with King Oliver for the Hot 7 recordings. So four of the five were, were exact same from the Hot 5, and then he added... Pete Briggs on the tuba, and none other than Baby Dodds, Johnny's brother, on the drums. So there you go. Now, Baby Dodds was highly, highly, highly influential because Baby Dodds had learned uh, dynamics. Now, other drummers, they were just slapping the drums, keeping beat, you know what I'm saying? But Baby Dodds learned this thing that he would... You know, drive at the end, he'd really climax and he'd drive at the end. But when a soloist was playing, you know, throughout the tune in the middle, he'd drop down so that it was easier to hear them on record. And then if they got louder, he'd follow them. And which is one of the, the staple pinnacles to really great listening drummers throughout the history of jazz. Think about it this way. There would be no Elvin Jones and that style of following along with the soloist had it not been for Baby Dodds. Something to ponder. So that's Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Sevens groups. Uh, there, I could, I could literally do just a podcast episode on just the Hot Five, Hot Sevens. But that was the Hot Seven with Potato Head Blues. Now, let's dig in just a little bit more with Miss Lil Harden Armstrong. She was now the wife, pianist of Louis Armstrong, and she is a musical staple to her own. So let's listen to one of her songs called Clip Joint. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
joint. Get me out of here. Clip joint. Two tracks there. The first one was Clip Joint by Lil Harden Armstrong. Now, it's important to know that she was already in Chicago. She was playing as the the girl at uh, a music store that would basically play all the sheet music. And um, she could outplay tons of working piano players, you know, in the city. So she got hired in, in different bands, etc. That's why King Oliver hired her. To be in his band, um, so she was um, in, of course, the 1923 Creole jazz band with King Oliver, 
when he sent for a young Louis Armstrong um, to join him from New Orleans. So when Louis first came up to Chicago to join King Oliver, he was, as she put it, uh, too country for Chicago. (laughs) So she worked to take the country out of him and, you know, all these guys who were trying to woo her, you know what I mean, in the band were really shocked that she would take such an interest in trying to take this young, you know, guy from New Orleans and take the country out of him and try to dress him better and try to, um, you know, improve his hairstyle and all these things, you know. So she took him shopping and had a dr- and showed him how to dress, uh, you know, more fashionably, etc., uh, and then once she got him looking the way that she wanted to, you know, a romance developed, and then she began on working on how she thought his career should go. Uh, she felt that he was wasting his talent in King Oliver's group because he was playing second cornet, and she felt that Louis was not a secondary player. Now. Louis was very happy to be next to King Oliver because, as he put it, that was Papa Joe. And he would have never left New Orleans had it not been for Papa Joe because he goes, Papa Joe's the only one that could ever get me out of New Orleans. So, of course, when Papa Joe called, he came running. But now Lil, Lil Harden was... um, persuading Louis that even though he was happy to be next to his idol, you know, Papa Joe, she persuaded him to leave King Oliver's Creole jazz band and he should go out on his own. So, for what it's worth, before, you know, people start comparing her to like a Yoko Ono sort of thing, you know what I mean? Um... When she did that, she was actually responsible for the last track that we heard, which was Sugarfoot Stomp. And that was by the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, featuring Louis Armstrong as soloist. Because in 1924, after Louis resigned from King Oliver's band. He accepted the job with Fletcher Henderson in New York City. And Lil stayed back in Chicago, still playing with King Oliver. And then she led a band of her own. But then she got a gig with her band at the Dreamland Cafe in Chicago. And she even had... uh, a banner waiting for Louis when he returned home from going out with Fletcher Henderson that said, the world's greatest trumpet player. Which is probably true, but still. But it was actually a conversation between Richard M. Jones, the New Orleans pianist, and Lil that actually created the the seed of what would be the Armstrong Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings. Because what it was is that this band would rehearse at Lil and Louie's place on East 41st Street in Chicago. 
Now, the crazy part about this band, and I say this for last, between the Hot 5 and the Hot 7 bands, is that they weren't actually a touring band. Like, they might have played one or two, like, benefit concerts, but they weren't a touring group. They were only a studio band because so many of them had other gigs. I mean, Johnny was over at, you know, Kelly's Stables and stuff like that, and then Louie was out, you know, in different groups, and he was playing with Fletcher Henderson, and, you know what I mean? He was, and Lil was playing with King Oliver, and she had her own group at the Dreamland, and so you see the problem here, right? So they were really kind of like the later Beatles. They were kind of just like this studio band. And that was one of the, the ways that Lil and Richard M. Jones kind of conceived this idea that they could sell records like hotcakes and not even be a real band, just a studio group. So, yes, she's responsible for Louis leaving the Creole jazz band of King Oliver, but she's also responsible for great music like what we just heard last, where Louis was part of the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra. And even though that was in New York at the Roseland Ballroom, there is a definitive link between Fletcher Henderson and Chicago, and that's coming up later. Up next, the great Earl Faba Hines with Chicago Rhythm. Thank you. 
right, that was Earl Father Hines. Ah, one of the greatest piano players in all of jazz history. I mean, he even played with Louis Armstrong, you know, and, and developed so much of that stuff. It's just, oh, he was the one who basically replaced Lil, you know what I mean, when whenever Louis played. And those Earl Hines, Louis Armstrong tracks are just killer, killer. In fact, it was Earl Hines, Louis Armstrong, and Zooty Singleton that had what they called, you know, the unholy three <laughs> is what they called it. Um, according to the book I'm reading here, Hear Me Talking to You by Nat Shapiro and Nat Hentoff. Um, and that they said that they wouldn't take a gig unless all of them were hired. Well, you know, don't promise stupid things. You know what I mean? So... Um, they eventually got sore at each other, and then they made up, and everything was okay. But uh, Earl Hines developed what was called trumpet-style piano playing, in which he would basically play these octaves in his right hand while he was playing chords in his left hand. And the reason is so that way you could, the listener could hear the trumpet cut through, or hear the piano cut through as if it were a trumpet. You know, those octaves kind of just cut through, when you're playing piano and uh that way he could also solo quicker with just playing chords in the left hand and then playing like what the trumpet would as a solo in the right hand so the fact that he could cut through and the fact that he could just solo freely in the right hand called it trumpet style so Heinz developed that uh along with a kick-ass band uh that eventually opened up at Chicago's Grand Terrace Cafe. Now, the interesting thing about that, and that was in 1928, but the interesting thing about Chicago's Grand Terrace Cafe is who owned it. And that would be Al Capone. Um, he became... Mr. Capone's Piano Man, Earl Hines did. And uh, it's a good thing that Al liked music because um, the upright piano that was at the Grand Terrace Cafe was soon replaced after Al Capone took over with a white $3,000 Beckstein Grand. Um, yeah, crazy as it is. Um, but they had broadcasts from the Grand Terrace Cafe. I mean, all across America. So America got to hear Earl Hines and his band, like what we just heard with that track, Chicago Rhythm. He was a staple of great music. Um, and he became very popular. And he was one of the most identifiable styles of piano in all of jazz history. And later on, just as a side note, he would have one of the most progressive modern bands that went on tour. And he, th these youngsters in his band would be guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Dexter Gordon and Charlie Parker. And he was really the one who started, he uh, helped allow um bebop to kind of begin within his band so 
all credit goes in, in, in so many directions of jazz history to Earl Father Hines. So, yeah, a lot of things wouldn't have happened without him. There you go. So, Earl Hines, super important to the history of jazz. Um, up next, Tiny Parham. He is a great band leader. I mean, I don't know what it is, but the older I get, I'm just like, that's a damn good band. You know what I mean? And then you listen to another track, and you're like, that's a damn good band. Earl, I mean, uh, Tiny Parham's band is consistent with me saying that just every time a track comes up or I just listen to an album by Tiny Parham, I'm just like, damn, that's a good band. So I was trying to decide between five tracks, to be honest with you. That was just like really sensational by the Tiny Parham group. Uh, But I settled on this one, and I'm not going to change my mind. Here is Jungle Crawl by Tiny Parham and his musicians.
Kani Parham with Jungle Crawl. Yes, yes, yes. All right, so Parham is actually from Canada. He was born in Canada, but he grew up in Kansas City. So what in the hell does that have to do with Chicago jazz, right? Well, um, he started touring with these territory bands, and then he finally moved to Chicago in 1926, probably because by 1926 it had reached everywhere that across the country that Chicago was the hotspot for modern jazz. So he's best remembered for all the recordings he made, which happened to be in Chicago, in between 1927 and 1930 for Victor. Uh, he was also the piano accompanist for Johnny Dodds and several female blues singers. Um, but most of the musicians that Parham played with are not well known in their own right. But some are. Cornetist Punch Miller, who came from New Orleans, uh, the banjo player Papa Charlie Jackson, who I believe was the banjo player with Freddie Keppard, and the saxophone player Junie Cobb, and he also played with Milt Hinton. And of course, Milt Hinton played with everybody. But um, his recordings are highly collectible and appreciated as prime examples of 1920s jazz. It's just really good music. It's a really good band. You know, uh, his style has been compared with Jelly Roll Morton. Uh, he did favor the violin in his band, though. So they have these weird, sophisticated violin solos with tuba, horns, reeds, piano, jazz style. You know, it's it's a strange combination. Uh, but the thing that's important to know about Tiny Parms, he wrote most of the songs. Uh, just like Jelly Roll Morton, he was a real composer, you know. Um, but by 1930, Tiny Parham suffered the same fate as King Oliver, Jelly Roll Morton, Red Allen. Uh, Victor chose not to renew his contract, Victor Records. And after 1930, he had to find work in theater houses, you know, mainly like an organist that plays behind the little silent pictures and stuff. It was pretty sad. Um, his whole recorded output only fits on two CDs. As sad as that is, you know. Um, but he was remembered by R. Crumb, Robert Crumb. So if you listen to John's old-time radio, you know, show that uh, they spin all the 78s, you know what I mean, with R. Crumb, that's the same R. Crumb from the East, what is it, East River String Band. So he's still alive. He's still in the south of France, grooving on 78s all day and all night long and playing with a string band and making cartoons. It's, it's great, you know. We should all be so lucky. Um... But R. Crumb decided that, yeah, he's going to dedicate one of the drawings in his book, Early Jazz Greats, you know, of the trading cards of early jazz musicians, to Tiny Parham. So kudos to R. Crumb. You don't hear a lot of people say that, so I'll say it. Kudos to R. Crumb. Um, up next, the band that really sent all the youngsters over the top, sending them to their record players, Figuring out these melodies, these notes, 
all by ear. We're talking about Paul Mayer's, George Bruni's, talking about the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Here's Farewell Blues. Let's talk a little bit about the New Orleans Rhythm Kings because I've heard of them. I've even heard them. I even have some albums by them. Um, but they're not somebody I really paid a lot of uh, close attention to until I started reading this book, Hear Me Talking to You by Nat Shapiro and Nat Hentoff. And um, if you really want some great books to... Uh, read about um, musicians from this time, I can recommend three really great books. Um, The one I've mentioned uh, consistently through this podcast, Hear Me Talking to You by Nat Shapiro and Nat Hentoff, uh, which is really just a collection of little um, interviews with tons of great jazz musicians who were there and who helped 
you know, provide the history of, of the music from the musicians' mouths themselves. Um, two other really, really, really great books would be We Called It Music by Eddie Condon and Really the Blues by Mez Mezro. But um, they all list the New Orleans Rhythm Kings as influences. And um, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings have a very strange history. So in the early stages of the New Orleans Rhythm King, or NORC as it's known as, as an acronym to be short, um, this, the NORC was created by uh, a drummer named Mike Stevens, and he was better known as Rag Baby. <laughs> um, he sent a telegram to Albert Brunies uh, about coming to Chicago to form a band that would uh, find better paid gigs than what they were being paid down in New Orleans. So um, Albert Brunies and his younger brother, George Brunies, who played the trombone, were really hesitant uh, about going and moving all the way from New Orleans to Chicago. So they were talking to their friend, who was a trumpet player named Paul Mayers, and Mayers was fearless. <laughs> he immediately took the opportunity and said, um, man, give me that wire. I'll go. Because... Uh, Abby said, uh, Albert Bruni said, I don't, I don't want to go to Chicago. I'm kind of leery. I'm kind of afraid. And like I said, Paul, Paul Mayer said, man, give me that wire. I'll go fearless, just completely fearless. So Paul Mayer's, he traveled all the way up to Chicago, introduced himself to rag baby Stevens and, uh, the drummer rag baby Stevens. He liked him and him and Paul Mayer's got uh, railroad fare together from uh, his father, and they sent George Bruni's $60. So George packed his trombone, and he set off for Chicago. And he joined up with Paul Mayers and Rag Baby, and they started playing gigs, and they started going to after-hours clubs together. And um, at one such club, the pair met some of their future bandmates. They met... Uh, a different drummer, Frank Snyder. They met a piano player named Elmer Schobel. And they met a saxophone player named Jack Pettis. Now, uh, the name the New Orleans Rhythm Kings did not initially refer to this group, but was rather the name of the group that was under uh, a vocalist named B. Palmer. B-E-E, -E, like a bumblebee. B. Palmer, and she was a vaudeville performer, but that group did not last and eventually broke up. So, a member of the group, Leon Rapolo, was a clarinetist, and he was playing on riverboats in Chicago with the pianist Elmer Schobel and the saxophonist Jack Pettis and the drummer Frank Snyder and the trombonist George Brunies the banjo player Lewis Black, not that Lewis Black, but a different Lewis Black, and possibly Paul Mayers. So this group was kind of playing together on riverboats, 
and they were ready to move on from riverboat life and find uh, a, a steady house gig. And so they did uh, at the Friars Inn. And this place was a club that was owned by Mike Fritzel. And um, so they met up with the bassist Arnold Loyocano, who was one of the guys who's actually interviewed in this book, Hear Me Talking to You. And so all these forces and all these musicians came together, and the swinging commenced at the Friars Inn. And it lasted 17 months, basically a year and a half, starting in 1921. But during this time, they were known as the Friars Society Orchestra, because they were playing at the Friars Inn. Um, while they were at the Friars Inn, they attracted a whole host of attention. Not just by fans, but other musicians. So, Bix Biderbeck, who had been sent to school in Chicago by his parents in Iowa, <laughs> they, were, they were hoping to remove him from any jazz influences around Iowa, so they sent him to Chicago. Boy, what a dumb move. Um... He was constantly going to their shows at the Friars Inn, and he performed with a band. So then the band started recording a bunch of records for Jeanette Records in 1922 and 1923. Now, on two of these sessions, they were joined by none other than Jelly Roll Morton, another staple in Chicago-style jazz. But um, their engagement at the Friars Inn ended, and now they were known as the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. And the sad part is that they were largely scattered and kind of disorganized, but they reformed periodically to make these recordings. And Leon Rapolo and Paul Mayers were more or less the leaders and the constant of the group. But the group never all, never played together all together. Again, they kind of went all their separate ways. Paul Mayers, the cornet trumpet player, continued to play music. He released a record in 1935. And um, he ran the PM New Orleans barbecue with his wife into the late 30s. Leon Rapolo um, was, and apparently from a lot of accounts, always had been uh, mentally ill and spent the last years of his life, just like Buddy Bolden, uh, in a mental institution until his death in 1943. But he managed to keep playing music as, as long as he could. Um, but the other members of the New Orleans Rhythm Kings kept successful music careers after the group dissolved. But they made a whole host of records that influenced a lot of those young Chicago kids. Uh, and in this book, Hear Me Talking to You, Jimmy McPartland is one of the ones that talks about how Farewell Blues was what they did, man. They, they'd go and they'd find these records and they would all meet after school and they'd put the record on and they'd try to find the notes from the record. They'd only like go four, maybe eight bars and they'd try to pick it out, the notes out by ear. And every, it was everybody at the same time. It's not like they took t turns with it, like, I'll take the record today, you take the record tomorrow, you figure out your parts, and then we'll meet up. No, 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 no. So they were all together, like, in a basement, and 
all these kids like Jimmy McPartland, he would try to figure out the cornet parts that Paul Mayers was playing, you know, four, eight bars at a time. And then other guys would try to figure out the clarinet parts and then the trombone parts and then the piano parts, etc. So it was this really raucous thing. And it was, he said it was really bad at first, but they eventually got it. And, you know, they said after a couple months, they could play like 10 tunes, you know. Um, so the New Orleans Rhythm Kings were the heroes of all these young kids who were in school in Chicago. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to is some of those young kids who became Chicago-style jazz superstars. It starts off with the great clarinet player Frank Teschmacher, otherwise known as Tesh. Here is Shimmy Shawabble.
Before that, we heard the original Dixieland One Step by Jimmy McPartland, who I just mentioned in the last uh, talking segment. And then we started off the set with Frank Teschmacher, better known as Tesh, with Shimmy Shawabble. So these were three kids who were highly influenced by the early Chicago jazz bands and the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. So Tesh uh, was actually born in Kansas City, Missouri, Uh, but he spent most of his career in Chicago, and he was a jazz clarinetist and alto saxophonist. And he was uh, associated with all these kids who were known as the Austin High Gang. So, the Austin High Gang consists of many young kids who were influenced by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, the Hot Five, Hot Seven recordings, Johnny Dodds, Baby Dodds, uh, Freddie Kepper, Jimmy Noon, Jelly Roll Morton, all those cats who we talked about in the first segment. That's why this whole thing is chronological. Uh, But Tesh... Spent most of his career in Chicago, uh, although it 
gigs did take him to New York and all around the Midwest, Florida, etc. Um, Tesh was really influenced by Bix, Bix Biderbeck. Um, he was mainly self-taught. He doubled on violin and banjo, but it was mainly the clarinet and the saxophone that he played professionally. He started playing the clarinet in 1925 professionally. Uh, he began recording uh, some recordings under his own name in 1928 um, through 1930. But the sad part is, is that you know so many of these people in this book hear me talking to you start talking about uh, Tesh and they were saying that he was really a force to be reckoned with on these live gigs you know they said he was just so passionate he had such a full tone so much energy so many ideas and that for some reason he never played his best when he was recording so they said the recordings of Teshmacher just don't do his legacy justice interesting thought you know um yeah so uh his intense solo work uh laid the groundwork for a rich sound and a creative approach that is credited with influencing many clarinet players including benny goodman and Wee russell um they say that Wee russell is perhaps the best known representative of the Teschmacher style. Uh, he also made some recordings on the saxophone, uh, but he eventually, in trying to make a living through the Great Depression, he played violin with Jan Garber's Dance Orchestra, which played really syrupy, schmaltzy, sweet music. Um, he did not enjoy popular success in the swing era in the 30s, late 30s, mid-30s, 40s because he was killed in an automobile accident. He was the passenger in a car that, and they were driving to a gig. Um, he was killed in a car uh, and the driver was the cornet player Wild Bill Davison. He, he was killed uh a couple of days short of what would have been his 26th birthday. So, unfortunately, what we have is all we have recorded by Frank Teschmacher. And it was, he was only 25. You think about how well you did things at 25 years old. So, there you go. Super sad. Um, after that, we heard... And like I said, that track with Teschmacher was Shimmy Shawabble. After that, we heard the original Dixieland One Step, which is by the great cornetist Jimmy McPartland. Uh, Jimmy McPartland was part of the Austin High School gang, born in Chicago. Um, he played all those um, New Orleans Rhythm King records, try to figure them out by ear, along with the Austin High gang which included Teschmacher, of course, on the clarinet, uh, his brother Dick McPartland, who is a banjo guitar player, uh, Jim Lanigan, who is his brother-in-law, 
uh, was the bass, tuba, and violin player. Joe Sullivan, the great Joe Sullivan, was part of the Austin High Gang. He was on piano. Davey Tuff, even though he was from Oak Park, was kind of, he, he was included with the Austin High Gang, and he was the drummer. Um, but, yeah, all these guys uh, w- would, and, and, of course, Bud Freeman on tenor sax. All these guys would get together, and they'd try to figure out all of these these records. And it was King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, you know, but the New Orleans Rhythm Kings especially, that was who who they really felt they could copy and, you know, they could figure it out and things like that. Um, so Jimmy was part of that group who was trying to figure out that style. And he went on to play with Eddie Condon, Pee Wee Russell, Lil Armstrong, you know, Jack Teagarden, Gene Krupa. Um, he also eventually married Marion McPartland. That's the connection there. Marion McPartland's husband is Jimmy McPartland uh, from the Austin High Gang. They were married for years, years. And then they divorced, even though they were still friends. And then um, he found out that he was dying of cancer and basically he you know um, what was it uh, a few weeks before his death um, he asked her to remarry him and she did and then uh, two days before his 84th birthday Jimmy died of lung cancer and um that was March 13th, 1991. Now, what's really crazy about that is, I don't know if you've ever heard of those stories about Thomas Jefferson and like John Adams and how they died on, you know, the same day, hours apart because their friendship was so strong. But two days later, two days Later, Jimmy passed away on March 13th, 1991. March 15th, 1991, another member of the Austin High Gang passed away. Bud Freeman. That's how close of friends they must have been. And Bud Freeman was a great tenor sax player. Um... He composed a lot of tunes. He was part of the Austin High Gang. Uh, he played the C melody saxophone for a while because uh, one of his idols was Frankie Trumbauer, who also played the C melody saxophone, which is kind of like an in-between size saxophone between the alto saxophone and the tenor saxophone, but in a concert C pitch. Um, he was influenced, of course, by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. We already talked about that. Um, in 1927, he eventually moved to New York, and he played with, like, Red Nichols and Ben Pollock, Joe Venuti, Eddie Condon. Um, but one of his nicknames was The Eel. And the reason for his nickname, The Eel, is because um, he would play these long serpentine lines when he would improvise. Now, according to the book that I'm reading, hear me talking to you, he didn't always play those long serpentine lines. It was stated that 
in his beginning developmental days uh, with the Austin High Gang that when they were playing and trying to figure out these records and they were just kind of jamming out, he would just find one note and he had incredible rhythm. I mean, he would swing like mad on just one note and it would drive the rest of the guys absolutely batty. They would they would just yell and, and holler and they'd say, please, bud, switch a note. Switch a note. Switch the note. You know, but he just sit there and he's grooving on this one note just over and over and over again. So rhythm was a huge part of his development in finding that that swing rhythm. And in fact, some of the guys in the Austin High Gang wanted to throw Bud out because he just didn't measure up to their level of wanting to improvise, you know. And some of some of the guys like Jimmy stood up for him and said, "No, no, 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 no. He's got great rhythm. He'll get it." You know what I mean? And it's a good thing. Because um, Bud Freeman is uh, a jazz treasure to the history of jazz. So, um, yeah. And we heard, like I said, The Eel by Bud Freeman. So, And, and that's the other thing. A lot of times you, you'll hear a, a lot of these musicians inter, interweave in between recordings of each other. Like Jimmy Noon played with Freddie Keppard. Freddie Keppard played with Jimmy Noon. King Oliver played with like Jelly Roll Morton. Jelly Roll Morton played with New Orleans Rhythm Kings. New Orleans Rhythm Kings, you know, influenced the Austin High Gang, right? So Bud Freeman would play with Jimmy McPartland. Jimmy McPartland would play with Frank Teschmacher. Frank Teschmacher would play with Bix. So they're all kind of intertwined together. It, it's a it's a nice little jazz community, if you will, if you look at it that way. And not everything's such to where it's divided in a box. They weren't you know, ostracized from each other. So, um, up next, we've got three more from that same group of kids who were influenced by the New Orleans Rhythm Kings and King Oliver and all that and Jimmy Noon. We've got the drummer George Wetling. We've got Mez Mesro, the great clarinet player. And we've got the great cornetist Muggsy Spanier. You're listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast with a spotlight on Chicago jazz.
We started out that set with the great drummer, George Wetling, with I've Found a New Baby. Now, George Wetling was actually born in Topeka, Kansas, but he grew up in Chicago. And he was one of the young Chicagoans who basically 
just like the Austin High Gang, fell in love with that New Orleans sound up in Chicago. He heard King Oliver's band at the Lincoln Gardens in the early 20s, and Baby Dodds playing with that band, the Creole Jazz Band in 1923 with Louis Armstrong and King Oliver. Baby Dodds hit him straight in the heart. And Wetling was set from that point on. He's like, I got to be a drummer. I got to play drums. So he eventually would work with like Artie Shaw, Bunny Berrigan, Red Norvo, Paul Whiteman. Um, But he was really top-notch when he worked with that Chicago-style jazz musicians like Eddie Condon and Muggsy Spanier, right? And he had actually had a band himself. So in these smaller groups, unlike the big bands, he really was a fan of the art of dynamics. And he would respond very sympathetically to different soloists, and he said that he learned that from listening to Baby Dodds. So um, one of the members that he he worked with a lot was Eddie Condon. Uh, and Condon's band would include all of these great style players like Wild Bill Davison, Billy Butterfield, Ed Hall, Pee Wee Russell, um, Walter Page, Ralph Sutton, you know. And um, towards the end of his life, he actually took up painting. And his style of painting was very influenced by uh, an American Cubist painter named Stuart Davis. And he said that um, he believed that jazz drumming and abstract painting seemed different only for him only from the point of view of craftsmanship. He said in both fields he felt rhythm to be decisive. So, and you could hear in that track, I Found a New Baby, such a great sympathetic drummer in George Wetling. So, kudos to George Wetling. After that, we heard the Friars Point Shuffle from none other than Mez Mezro, who has an autobiography called Really the Blues. That's another great book if you want to read that. Uh, And if you want to check out these titles for these albums that I'm getting this from, and I'll try to see if I can find pictures of these three book recommendations and throw them on the website too. Just check it out. It's called Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast, all one word, no spaces, dot wordpress.com. And it'll take you to this episode and other episodes and you can find the album art and um, yeah and I'll see if I can try to find the covers for those books as well Milton Mesro better known as Mez Mesro was a clarinetist and saxophone player born in Chicago and um, on November 9th 1899 and This guy was, of course, uh, influenced by all the New Orleans musicians. Um, Man, and 
he he eventually would um, be really good friends with cats like Sidney Bechet, Hot Lips Page. We would play on recordings by Fats Waller. Um, in 1948, he eventually uh, went to the Nice Jazz Festival in Nice, France, and that's where he made his home. Was in France, and that's where he died. It was in France. Um, just like Sidney Bechet. So that's why there's a whole chapter to, I mean, if you really want to get into it, between Mes Mesro and Sidney Bechet, and the Mesro Bechet recordings are out of this world good. I mean, we're talking just killer playing. You know what I mean? If you love Sidney Bechet like I do, you need to go check that out. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's killer music. Um, Eddie Condon even said of, uh, Mez when he fell through the Mason Dixon line, he just kept going, you know, and he eventually <laughs> landed in, in France. So, uh, Eddie Condon was always very quick witted, you know, when, um, talking about the bebop era he said they they flat their their fifths you know we just drink ours so it's you know <laughs> um so mes mesro uh born in chicago you know very influenced by that whole thing uh very associated with um marijuana you know he he the muggles the word muggles was slang for you know um for weed, for, you know, marijuana at the time. And he was known as the Muggle King, the Muggles King, and um, even helped influence Louis Armstrong to uh, record the song Muggles because that was the slang and the terminology back then. So he uh, also was help helping for Stuff Smith for that um, the lyrics to the song If You're a Viper. So, yeah. He it became a um, the word mez m e z z was another uh, slang term code term for marijuana. You know where there's the lyric and if you're a viper, mighty mighty mez, but not too strong. Well, that's how he got his name, mez mezro. So there you go. Uh, and we heard, like I said, the Friars Point Shuffle. No doubt a nod to the Friars Inn where, you know, all the guys would play in the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. And then another cat who shares the exact same birthday as Mez Mesro, November 9th, just two years later, 1901, born in Chicago as well, the great cornetist Muggsy Spanier. Now, even though he was born in Chicago, he started playing at 13 years old in 1921 with Elmer Shebel. Shebel. Now, where have we heard that name? He was the piano player for the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Yeah, so see, there's another uh, connect the dots moment. And... Um, his real name is Francis Joseph Spanier, but he got the name Muggsy from John Muggsy McGraw, who was the manager of the New York Giants baseball team back then. So he said, yeah, I'll be Muggsy, Muggsy Spanier. 
And in the early 20s, he played with the Bucktown Five. By 1929, he became a member of the Ted Lewis Band. Then he spent some time with Ben Pollock. Um, he had an illness, which kind of sidelined him for a little bit, but then he assembled an eight-man group called Muggsy Spanier and his Ragtime Band. Now, in 1939... He that now if you're keeping track of things, that's the same year that Blue Note Records started. But in 1939, the the band Muggsy Spanier and his Ragtime Band recorded several sessions of Dixieland standards for Bluebird Records that were later called the Great Sixteen. And those sixteen tracks influenced the Dixieland revival that took the jazz world by storm and became full-blown by the 1950s. Now, who was part of Muggsy Spanier's ragtime band? That's the next question. Call it jazz journalism, if you will. Jazz investigations. Well, let's see here. There was Bob Casey on bass, Bernie Billings on tenor sax, uh, Nick Siatza on sax, Ray McKinstry on saxophone, Joe Bushkin on piano. There's another one of the Austin High Gang. Uh, Rod Kless on the clarinet, and George Brunies on trombone and vocals. Now, wait a minute. George Brunies, where have we heard that name? Oh, right. He was the cat that Paul Mayers sent the railroad fair to down in New Orleans along with Rag Baby Stevens. And that's who started the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, remember? Yes. So, George Bernie's not only influenced Muggsy Spanier, but then later became a part of his band, his ragtime band that started the whole Dixieland revival. I mean... George Bruni's has got to be like King Midas here, right? I mean, how many times can you influence people? But he influenced two big influences. The Dixieland Revival and the Austin High Gang. All those young Chicago kids. So there you have it. But Sidney Bechet would also play with Muggsy Spanier. The great Sidney Bechet. And that group was known as the Big Four in 1940. And, of course, Sidney Bechet was a huge part of the Dixieland revival by recording tracks like Summertime for Blue Note Records, which kept that record label going. And that was with the Port of Harlem Jasmine as well. Um, 1940-1941, he played with Bob Crosby and his Bobcats, who was Bing Crosby's brother. Uh, by the 1950s, he moved out to the West Coast, and he joined Earl Hines and his band from 1957 to 1959, if you can believe that. So he even ended playing with Earl Hines, who is one of the Chicago jazz musicians we took a look at in this episode. So, um, yeah. Muggsy Spanier shares a birthday with Mez Mezro and has played with everybody. So if you liked T 
Tin Roof Blues, which is the last track that we heard by Muggsy Spanier. Check out more Muggsy Spanier. All right. Coming up near the end here, we've got Eddie Condon. We've got Bix, Tram, and then the person who all this really influenced. And we'll get to that by the end. So let's listen to Condon, Bix, and Tram. Here is the first track by Eddie Condon called Liza. And no, it's not Liza till the clouds roll by. It's a different Liza, which is really hip. Not a lot of people know about it. Usually skip over it. But it was written by one of Eddie Condon's good friends. Here's Eddie Condon with Liza.
twisted bottle. That last track right there was Hitting the Bottle by Frankie Trumbauer. And Frankie Trumbauer had kind of spent time everywhere. He's original for, originally from Illinois, Carbondale, Illinois. Um, but he kind of grew up in St. Louis, you know what I mean? Um, he was part of the Mound City Blue Blowers. Um which made a lot of famous recordings. He was also uh, part of Gene Goldcat's Victor Recording Orchestra, and he is the one who recorded or recruited. I'm sorry, recruited Bix Biderbeck to join Goldcat's band. Uh, they worked together in Adrian Rolini's New Yorkers band. They worked together with Paul Whiteman. They also recorded many small group sessions for OK and. Which includes what the track that we just heard before that, which was Singing the Blues, uh, which featured Eddie Lang on the guitar, classic guitar player, and Bix on the cornet. And 
Frankie Trumbauer, better known as Tram. Tram on the C melody saxophone. He had a real smooth, light, airy, flowing, wind-like style, you know. Uh, and of course, Bix had that cool, mellow soloing idea, you know, uh, just idea after idea in his solos. So, yeah, Bix and Tram are inseparable, you know, musically speaking. Uh, you can't talk about one without the other. Uh, Tram was also known as one of the main influences on the great saxophonist Lester Young. Uh, one time an interviewer asked Prez about his influence, and he said Frankie Trumbauer was his major influence. And it was such a shock that the the interviewer said, so it's Trumbauer? And Prez said, that was my man. So he listened to all of those Bix Beiderbeck, Frankie Trumbauer things. And then the development from that was all that we heard and those classic solos by Prez. So see, everything's interrelated. Um, interesting note, though. Um, Frankie Trumbauer actually was a test pilot with the North American Aviation. And he trained military crews in the operations of B-25 bombers. Crazy. So here was a guy who was playing with the NBC Orchestra and then training, you know, pilots to be bombers. Crazy. Crazy as hell. Also, in case you didn't know, this is something that blew my mind. Big Spiderbeck has an asteroid named after him. I kid you not. And the strangest part is that it's asteroid 23457, which is almost a perfect minor pentatonic if you stop and think about it. Strange. Some stars can never go away. <laughs> they just become asteroids. I'm serious. It's called Biderbeck, Bix Biderbeck, named after Bix Biderbeck, 23457. Cray cray. All right. Before that, we heard the Eddie Condon track, Eliza. And Eddie Condon is, oh, he is such a fixture in the, in the jazz history community. There's a great autobiography by Eddie Condon called We Called It Music. I've read that book cover to cover. It's so good. It's well-written. It's fast-paced. It literally takes you through Eddie meeting all these great jazz musicians and his account of them. I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's a little bit of a thick book, but it's not terrible. Once again, if you want to check out that book, check out the website. It's Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast. No spaces. .wordpress.com. Back to Eddie Condon. Um, he was based in Chicago most of the 20s, and he played, of course, with Bix. He played with Jack Teagarden, uh, Teschmacher. Um, he even, with Red McKenzie, formed the Chicago Rhythm Kings. Different. 
1925. But by 1928, he moved to New York, and he would be, you know, recording in the studios, and he would record with Louis Armstrong and Fats Waller, um, Henry Red Allen, Red Nichols, you know, Milk Gabler. Uh, He would record for Commodore Records, he, yeah, he he would record for Decca as well. You know what I mean? He had um, what he called a sophisticated variation on Dixieland music, and he called it Nixieland music because he was a regular at the Manhattan Jazz Club, Nix. So there you go. Um of course, he played with Wild Bill Davison, George Brunies, the same guy who was a trombone player along with Paul Mayers for the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. He played with Ed Hall. He played with Bobby Hackett, uh, who eventually became a great soloist uh, in his own right and uh, soloed with many big bands, including the Glenn Miller Orchestra. He also played with Pee Wee Russell, who was a fantastic clarinet player. Um, yeah, and then he did a whole series of jazz concerts from New York's Town Hall in 1944 and 1945. Uh, he also had his own jazz club from 1945 through 1967 called Eddie Condon's, which was at West 3rd Street in Greenwich Village. Uh, then he moved that to 52nd Street near 6th Avenue, so um, on the present site of the CBS headquarters. There you go. I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, he, he played with just about everybody there is to play with. Eddie Condon is a staple of jazz history and fantastic at that. He also played, of course, with Jimmy McPartland, which I forgot to mention was the replacement for Big Spiderbeck in the Wolverines when Big Spiderbeck left the Wolverines band. Who do they call in? Jimmy McPartland. So, and of course, he Eddie Condon played with them too. Um, yeah, Eddie Condon. If you haven't checked out Eddie Condon stuff, there's a bunch, and it's all good. It's all swinging. It's all solid jazz. So, Eddie Condon's group, the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, Mez Mesro, Johnny Dodds, Jimmy Noon, all these cats, Big Spiderbeck, who all could they have influenced the most? Well, right here, page 126, with an interview with Ben Pollock. Ben Pollock says, The very first time I heard Benny Goodman was in Chicago when he was a kid of like eight or nine years old. And he was doing an imitation of Ted Lewis, who of course was then the king. Later, at 15 or 16 years old, and just before I brought him to the coast to work with me at the Venice Ballroom, he was playing a mixture of Jimmy Noon, Leon Rapolo, Buster Bailey, and other great clarinet players. He always had a terrific gift for handling his instrument, that combination of technique and tone, plus the one thing every musician seeks, a style that can be identified before his name is announced. That style is his own, and he developed it himself. So all of these great musicians, from him checking out as a kid, 
Louis Armstrong at the Sunset Cafe and Johnny Dodds and those records with the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens. Kelly's Stables where Johnny Dodds would play with Natty Dominique to Frank Teschmacher to Leon Polo with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. Jimmy Noon playing with Freddie Keppard. All of these were who he mixed into a blender and came up with his own swinging style. Now, at this point, if a lot of people were going to play a Benny Goodman track, they'd probably play something like Sing, 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 or Stompin' at the Savoy, or maybe something by the Benny Goodman Quartet, something that was like famous by Benny Goodman. But no, I wanted to go way, 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 way back. Like 1928, 1931. That time frame. Early, early, earliest of Benny Goodman recordings. And I want to play you Jungle Blues. Because I think that that is more indicative of the time. And that is very... That that will show you as the listener just exactly how all those influences really came together in an early sound that Benny Goodman had. So, without any further ado, the conclusion to this program, Benny Goodman with Jungle Blues.
the great Benny Goodman early Benny Goodman with Jungle Blues not your typical Benny Goodman but you can hear some of those influences Leon Rapolo, Jimmy Noon Buster Bailey, Johnny Dodds in fact Benny always said that Johnny Dodds had the purest tone that he's ever heard on the clarinet which I would have to agree. I kind of alluded to that earlier. So, Well, I appreciate you sticking with me. I appreciate you listening to the Dr. Jazz podcast. As the famous Duke Ellington always says, thank you and we do love you madly. So hopefully you've enjoyed learning a little bit about what historians call Chicago-style jazz, often overlooked. Hopefully you learned uh, or heard about even for you, you know, seasoned jazz listeners. Hope to sprinkle some seeds of intrigue, knowledge, and interest for you to go and check out. Please support these artists, and please check out the website, drjazzpodcast.wordpress.com. And I would love to hear any suggestions from you. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Please share with your friends. And until next time, ashes to ashes, Dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust. <laughs>